Conclusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science radiate into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition we'll feature phone fears, nanopause, eco-literacy and nerve building. But first up, here's the news with Larissa Savas. Immunosuppression is the major obstacle that transplant recipients face with patients requiring powerful immunosuppressive drugs for the duration of their lifetime. However, there is a growing focus upon using cells and tissue from healthy regions of one's own body to transplant to damaged areas and overcome problems of rejection associated with cells and tissues sourced from donors, including animals and cadavers. Severe nerve damage is particularly challenging to treat. To repair itself, the two disconnected but healthy portions of a damaged nerve must by some means locate each other through a network of tissue and reconnect. This occurs naturally for a very small wound, akin to how our skin grows back over a small cut. However, for some nerve injuries, the gap is just too large and the nerve will not grow back without intervention. Ideally, neurosurgeons prefer to transplant nerve tissue from elsewhere in the patient into the damaged area, with the nerve acting as scaffolding for a new nerve to grow and close the gap. And since the tissue is that of the patient, the body will not reject the new nerve. Unfortunately for many, this treatment is not an option. A patient may have severe damage to other regions of the body, such that extra nerve tissue is unavailable. Thus, the patient may need to accept a nerve transplant from a foreign body and face the problems associated with immunosuppression. In spite of this, researchers at the University of Rochester Medical Centre in the United States have recently successfully bridged a gap of approximately half an inch in rats using neurogen nerve guides equipped with dorsal root ganglion cells from a different type of rat. After four months of monitoring, significantly less unwanted attention from the immune system was provoked than when the procedure was repeated with Schwann cells. Neurogen nerve guides are hollow, absorbable collagen tubes through which nerve fibres are able to grow and locate each other. Traditionally, Schwann cells have been considered as playing a critical role in the regenerative process. And while this still holds, this study has demonstrated that dorsal root ganglion cells can also play an important role and thus be a rich resource for nerve regeneration. The same laboratory has also been stretching dorsal root ganglion cells, which promotes them to grow approximately one inch every three weeks. The intention is then to grow nerves several inches long in the lab to then transplant into the patient as opposed to waiting months post-surgery for the nerve endings to bridge the gap in the patient. Thank you, Larissa. Dr. Maya Soren has just completed her PhD at the Electrical Engineering Department at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, RMIT, studying the effects of mobile phone radiation on human health. 
She spoke to me in a mostly quiet room while she was in town for the Australian Science Communicators National Conference. I've been working on a sub-problem of a sub-problem within the area of mobile phone safety. I've been looking at how anatomic variations in human heads affect the amount of energy that people absorb when they use mobile phones and how that affects safety standards. So whether there are some people who, you know, due to uh, different kinds of anatomy, for example, big eyes or thin skin or their brains located in slightly different places, whether that affects uh, how much energy they absorb and whether due to their specific anatomic variations, they absorb more energy than the safety standard says is allowed. So would that include children? Not necessarily. There's uh, plenty of variation. In fact, there is just as much variation between adults and children as they're in within the group of children. And that's true in any age group that you choose to look at. So you can define children as, for example, under 12, under 17, under 21. Yes. And there's still stupid amounts of variation <laughs> in all of those groups. So what did you find? I found that there are some worst case scenarios and what I mean what, what I found is that the skin thickness is one of the biggest differences. Most uh, energy that a human body absorbs from mobile phone emissions from mm -hmm. the radio frequency uh, is actually absorbed by the skin. Yep. It's not particularly dangerous, it's just that that's where it's absorbed and that the thickness of the skin and the water content of your skin makes a really big difference. So, you know, wear moisturizer. <laughs> so if your skin is more moist, your skin will block more radiation? Yes, well, block, uh, absorb more so no more gets further in the skin, into your body. When the skin absorbs radiation, what happens to it? When you use a mobile phone, the uh, radio frequency emissions from it create a little bit of a warming effect and that's true of all radio frequency coming in the ways that we use them in radio frequency devices things like mobile phones wi-fi bluetooth there's a little bit of a warming effect and that's about it the people who are concerned about cancer from mobile phones or from wi-fi devices can probably sleep safely <laughs> there's really all the evidence to date, and there is a lot of evidence, suggests that there is no link between mobile phones and cancer. I mean, what, what's happened so far is that we've looked pretty hard and we've found no links. We found uh, that there have been some studies that show some links, but they haven't been reproducible. So when people have gone to try and repeat the study, couldn't, re couldn't reproduce the results at all. And that's the gold standard for science. Kind of is. And uh, there's been a lot of research into this area. In fact, uh, at about 2005, the two foremost expert bodies, the <laughs> Institute for uh, Ele Electrical and Electronic Engineers, the IEEE, and the World Health Organization, they, between them on their databases, had uh, 2,600 studies relating to uh, safety of radio frequency, over 600 just mobile phones, and the estimation was that as a human race we've spent more examining links between mobile phones and cancers in terms of money and human hours than we have on any other potential carcinogen. So we've looked pretty hard. We might still find something but it's, it, the probability is getting lower. It's becoming less and less likely that we'll find any links between mobile phones and cancers. One of the new things that's happening now is that children are starting to use them true. So I guess that might be a little bit new for, for the data? 
a little bit. Uh, research into the interaction of mobile phone emissions with children has been happening for a long time due to public concern, due to the size of the children's heads, due to the different anatomy, and that's one of the things that I examined, head sizes and different anatomies. And there doesn't seem to be any more or less effects on children than on adults. So really it's only the social dangers that might be there? The social dangers and using mobile phones while driving, that's really dangerous. That's as dangerous as drinking and driving. Yes, yeah, so no children should be drinking, driving or using mobile phone at the same time. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so basically people might just have to accept that the technology is as safe as we can currently determine it to be. Pretty well, and if you are concerned, uh, move the phone away from your head a little bit when you speak. Just a little bit of a gap, even a half centimetre to one centimetre gap makes a massive difference to the amount of energy you absorb. If you are concerned, use hands-free kit or a Bluetooth, or some, although, you know, that's, <laughs> that's again radio frequency. But overall, science says you seem to be doing okay. So you raised the idea of hands-free with Bluetooth and yep. Bluetooth is a form of radio, but Bluetooth is a lot lower power than you would use to contact a base station, isn't it? Not necessarily. Well, the distance between the Bluetooth device and the emitter, like your phone, you know, the handset and phone, is a lot less than between a mobile phone and a base station, that's true. But in terms of the power that it's emitting, for you, it makes uh, not very much difference, to be honest. So a hands-free isn't really that much safer unless it's a wired hands-free. True, and the wired hands-free doesn't make that much of a difference, to be honest. So those people nope. who happen to get cancers in that part of their head, basically it was an unfortunate coincidence. Well, people get cancers is the long and the short of it, and humans live longer, and we have superbly better detection technology now than we used to so our ability to detect cancers uh, when we never would have uh, has grown dramatically in the past 20 years so we appear to get higher incidence of cancer but in reality there's not really has it been a reclassification of mobile phones? A couple of years ago the International Agency for Research into Cancer which is an arm of the World Health Organization reclassified mobile phones as potentially carcinogenic. Up, right up until then they'd been probably not carcinogenic. The reclassification actually didn't happen on very much new evidence and the new evidence isn't very convincing. A lot of the researchers find, you know, it, it have taken a little bit of an affront with the reclassification because it's created a lot more public concern than is warranted. Who's paying for the research? Yes, thank you. That's, that's one of those questions that a lot of people want to know. Turns out, most of the people who do research in this area, in fact, almost exclusively people who do research in this area and do it well, are people who are employed by telecommunications companies. Because telecommunications companies the people who are concerned about the safety of mobile phones <laughs> so nobody else really employs RF specialists radio frequency specialists um, and the uh, often the research will happen either through university or in close association with the university mm -hmm. uh, funding for the research for example in my case came through government grant and I'm a university student uh, so all the funds for my research really uh, came from uh, the university and through the government. 
and I did get access to equipment from a telecommunications uh, company and some uh, expertise in how to use the equipment. It's my personal experience <laughs> that, <laughs> that generally researchers in, in mobile phone safety just roll their eyes and wish they would find some link between RF and cancer because, you know, you're never going to get famous this way. <laughs> you keep telling people they're safe. No one's, no one's really interested in listening. I'll just say yeah. Dr. Doctor. Doctor. Maya Soran. Newly to Dr. Maya. I'm waiting for them to post pack me my PhD, actually. <laughs> Dr. Maya Soran, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. And that was the newly minted Dr. Maya Soran talking about the safety of mobile phones for human use. The evidence is in and they're safe, whether you believe it or not. And next is MJ Hibbert and the validators with a little bit. They had it easy in the Renaissance. They could invent new branches of science over lunch. But nowadays we work more incrementally. No one's naming any new elements after us. Because we all do a little bit, that's how we do research. There's teams all around the world doing these little bits of work. We only do a little bit, but it's always for the best. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Next, Melissa Slarp is a qualified teacher and master's student at the University of Sydney. Julianne Popple stopped by for a chat about her work on eco-literacy in children. My research topic is looking at the eco-literacy of five-year-olds. And eco-literacy is the understanding of ecological concepts and their application for conservation purposes. What made you interested in studying eco-literacy in five-year-olds specifically? 
it went back to I was working uh, at Te Papa in New Zealand, their national museum, and I was I developed a program for under fives, and I did it on recycling, and seeing the kids respond to the program, in in such a way they were grasping the concepts quite quite easily. Uh, my boss was surprised. And seeing the looks of surprise on the parents' faces as well, they weren't aware that their kids knew this stuff. And I thought, if they're not aware, if people like my boss weren't aware, then I'm sure there are a lot of other people who are also not aware and we're underestimating these kids. So I came back to Sydney to study it further. How do you assess eco-literacy in a five-year-old? Yeah, that's a good question. We, um, we can't get them to write an essay, obviously, so I get them to draw a picture. And then I use a coding system to get quantitative data from that. And I also interview them about their picture so that I can ask them what their drawing's about. I understand in your current project you were teaching children about penguins. Yeah, um, so penguins were decided uh, to be used as the focus animal. So I implemented a teaching intervention so that I could test their eco-literacy before and after the teaching intervention. And penguins were decided as the focus animal because they're very familiar with all five-year-olds, thanks to movies such as Happy Feet and, um, and I guess, gen- other general childhood books. Every kid knows what a penguin is. It doesn't matter about their, their cultural background or, or where they've come from. So I taught them about different ecological concepts uh, in regards to penguins, uh, so food chains and animal behaviour and biodiversity and such. What was the impact of your intervention? Well, we've analysed the results and they, their eco-literacy, while their baseline eco-literacy, so what we would say their, their pre-existing knowledge before the intervention, that was already quite good. It improved significantly uh, amongst all the students after the intervention. And what we did then is we waited five months and went back and retested the children without another teaching intervention, just retested them and they maintain that eco-literacy knowledge then. And what do you think teachers or other researchers in your field can learn from your work? Uh, definitely to not underestimate uh, children and what they, can under- what they can understand. I think uh, we all know that kids are sponges and uh, you know that they can take a lot in, but I think this uh, has shown that that also applies to complex ecological concepts and in terms of environmental education and the need to have the citizens of our future to be environmentally aware and citizens who who can live in a sustainable manner there's no reason not to incorporate such knowledge and and skills at from the very start of formal schooling and do you think your methods of assessing how much the children have retained will be useful for teachers yeah I i think that Uh, made it quite powerful because we didn't test them just straight after the intervention we tested them uh, five months later so five months for a kindy for a kindy kid is a long time so that they remembered a lot was good and as well as that uh, interviews with the teachers show that they were using that knowledge in the class in that time as well and I think that would give strong evidence to, to other teachers and curriculum developers that that this is a good method yeah and so what's the next step for you in terms in terms of your work in terms of this work well I'm writing up all the results at the moment so hoping to hand that in soon and then it will be further um, development of curriculum resources that teachers can use in the classroom. That was Melissa Slarp talking to Julianne Popple about the importance of keeping kindy kids eco-literate. 
Next, I spoke to Jeff McIntyre at the Noisy Nicta Conference about the project to develop solid-state nanopores for DNA sequencing. Sequencing individual strands of DNA on a chip. Jeff McIntyre, what's, what's your role? So my role, I actually have a background in both genetics and computer science. So what we do is we engage with external collaborators in medical research institutes that are doing molecular profiling of different diseases. So what comes with that molecular profiling, especially when you start looking at the DNA in specific human cells and tissue samples, is huge amounts of data as a result. And so there's a big challenge in taking that data being able to interpret um, efficiently and then take that information and convert it into something that's biologically relevant and therefore relevant to have an impact in the clinic and affect treatment. So what sort of things can people do with that data? So um, I can give you a quick example of perhaps one oh, of our projects. So we work in a field which is known as genome-wide association studies. So what that is, is you might take 10,000 people, 10,000 people, you take 5,000 that have a particular disease. In our case, the example here I've got is breast cancer and 5,000 healthy human individuals. And you'll go in and you'll measure their DNA at a million positions in the genome. And you'll look for changes that are associated with the people with the disease and then therefore compared to the people without the disease. Now, that's been a big industry around for quite a while, $3 billion invested worldwide, and unfortunately the results haven't been overly successful. The reason being is if you look at one mutation and try and tie it to disease, it's not, you're not going to find that because these diseases, especially cancer, are overly complex. So it's actually going to be a series of DNA mutations in combination that give rise to either predisposition for the disease or causal for the disease. Right. Now, here's where the computational challenge comes in. If we want to look at just two pairs of DNA mutations instead of a single one, the calculations required, instead of taking one or two days to do the analysis, you're looking at millions of years to do the analysis for a naive computational approach. So what we do is we develop algorithms that speed up that process and then also use particular computer architectures like graphical processing units which are designed for kind of high throughput processing of certain types of data. So we can take our algorithm and speed up that calculation so we can now do it in hundreds of days. So it becomes feasible to do an analysis at a genetic level that was not feasible without computation. What's different about the computation that you're doing yeah, so there's a few different combinations. That's where the the group we have, the diagnostic genomics group, is really good. So we've got people with mathematics backgrounds, statistics, computer science, um, as well as genetics, and, and people who are quite tied closer to the biology. So when you start to pull those things together, we have people that work in kind of what we call extreme value statistics. So we can move right when you've got millions of variables you're measuring. It's no longer a normal approximation which will allow you to achieve your goals. You have to move into the far tails of these distributions. So we have experts in that combined with people who are very good theoretically in computer science, so sparse matrix representations, little tricks mathematically that you can employ 
to carry out something much, much more quickly and much more efficiently. And then we have some great software engineers that know the computer architectures, like I said. Um, so you can use those much more efficiently than the standard program would yeah. use. So those things in combination is what gives us our kind of energy method in being able to execute these things more quickly. And some of this can also lead to personalised medicine. Precisely. So that's our end goal. So we also engage, so another project we're working on setting up is a large-scale prostate cancer genomics project where we're tying with people who spend a lot of time gathering really high-quality samples with clinical information in prostate cancer, and they're now profiling those at the genomics level. And we're trying to set up, in collaboration with a range of different people, these pipelines where you can take the genomic information for a single individual and try and use that to test which current drugs on the market they will respond to in a timely manner for which we can take a sample biopsy, put it through genomic profiling, analyse it with our software and algorithms, and then influence the treatment in the clinic. Sounds ideal. Yeah. So that's a model we're working towards. Um, and I'm based at the Victorian Research Lab in Melbourne, so we've got a, a biosciences precinct in which all the computation as well as the medical research institutes are all kind of tied together and it's amazing what walking across the road can do to boosting that research and just being able yes. to talk to everybody. That seems to be a theme here in NICTA, that all of the different projects are finding uses in the other projects, their results. Yeah, definitely. We, well, this, this event's a classic example of that. I walk around and I find some of the colleagues are doing amazing things that I wasn't aware of. And now that I am aware of, we can talk a bit more on the job and share some resources with colleagues. It's very exciting. Well, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. That was Jeff McIntyre from NICTA researching how to sequence your genome on a chip. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And look on iTunes for the 2SCR app. Contributing to the program were Larissa Savas and Julianne Popple. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney. And Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.